Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Celebrate the Chicago Reader. Join us to see the Reader come to life at our second annual Ungala, Wednesday, October 18th at the stunning Epiphany Center for the Arts. We'll have Reader-approved entertainment, including Grammy Award-winning Peter Cottontail, local rockers, the Trenchies, DJs, live art, and other performances. More details are at chicagoreader.com slash ungala. That's chicagoreader.com slash ungala. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday the 13th starts now. As we do every Friday on this show, it's Oh What a Week, so Ben brings on a guest to talk the top stories, and this week, it's none other than political consultant and media commentator, Chris Scott. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a production of the Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, any questions you have pertaining to Chicago, just head to chicagoreader.com because that's where you're going to find the answers. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-B is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this, oh, thank you, New York Times Friday, and here's why. Actually, it's over oh, in a week. Uh, and a uh, good friend of the show, Chris Scott, sitting by, political strategist. And uh, we'll be delving into all the news uh, of the week, well, at least the Washington news of the week. Um, and the folks who are tuning in wondering where is our discussion, the ongoing discussion we have about uh, the war in the Middle East. I got Romana Hussein, we had Lior Galil, Nader Assist coming on, Rosanna Rodriguez. So we're not uh, shirking our responsibility on that front, but there's other things going on that we want to discuss as well. Uh, and so, <laughs> so I've been talking to Chris Scott uh, before we did the show. What are we going to talk about? You know, uh, the House Speaker race is one of them. Donald Trump's latest antics uh, uh, is another. I'm some like a breakdown of Ohio. Chris Scott is sort of our uh, in-house expert on Ohio. He he passed my trivia questions that I threw at him months ago. I didn't believe uh, that he really knew Ohio, and he showed me wrong. Uh, he knows Ohio way better than I do. But then this story broke. This one is such a piece of work, ladies and gentlemen, about just, it just says so much. I don't know. It says so much about so many things. It says so much about corruption. It says so much about how Washington works. It says so much about how people from other countries have figured out how Washington works and just act accordingly. Uh, and uh, it also it also says a lot about New York Times coverage. And it's just like a funny little aside. Uh, so Senator Bob Menendez and his wife have been indicted on charges of bribery. Uh, they are, this is the allegations. As you all know, in America, uh, you're innocent until proven otherwise. I always say that. <laughs> Donald Trump supporters always say that, right? So I'll say that about Bob Menendez, Senator from New Jersey. And the New York Times had an excellent article. Uh, in, I think it ran. I saw it today. I don't know when it ran. 
breaking down the case against Menendez. It's a convoluted, complicated story that you like you would read in a spy novel or something, or you would watch in a great thriller. Uh, and so effectively, uh, Menendez uh, is accused of exchanging favors on behalf of the Egyptian government for money and gold bars. That's like the that, that's like the part that's grabbed everyone's imagination. They literally gave him gold bars. You know, <laughs> I've heard a lot of payoffs in my life, but gold bars. You know, so that's really caught everyone's imagination. Uh, and as I said, it's a very convoluted story uh, having to do. Uh, with a middleman uh, who was rep- sort of representing uh, the Egyptian government. He, too, uh, has been charged. Uh, while Hana is his name. He's an Egyptian-American businessman. So uh, he had the favor of the Egyptian government by virtue of, of the fact, well, he had won a contract, a very lucrative contract, allegedly, uh, from the Egyptian government uh, for his uh, halal services. And uh, he was then using the, the, the influence he had with Egypt uh, to act on behalf of the Egyptian government with Menendez, if you can follow that. Uh, and so the New York Times, man, this is a trip. <laughs> so they're, they're trying to explain this to their American audience, their readers in New York City, wherever they think their readers are. Uh, and, um, and they go, the connection may seem baffling to Americans. Egypt's intelligence chief at an obscure company ensuring that exported meat, milk, and vitamins are religiously permissible for Muslims to eat. But in Egypt, where official power and profit have become inseparable, a lucrative deal for a well-connected businessman, one that would also enrich the security establishment, was a common way for the state to do business. Hello, New York Times. Have you not, what, what universe do you live with? Where in America would be a, that notion of an insider trading on his contacts with a government to influence politicians be unusual? Like, you think that your readers of the New York Times are picking up the New York Times that day? Like, oh, my God, bribery exists in the world. I never heard of this. Hello, New York. You got how many? I can't even do this off the top of my head. Who, the Speaker of the House of New York went to, uh, to jail, I believe, on corruption charge. Menendez is the senator from New Jersey, which is the state, New York, just like, what is it, South New York? Oh, ge- geography challenge moment for Ben. <laughs> Chris Scott is laughing. It is South. New Jersey is South, right? Yeah, South. Is well, the state right next to you, all right? I know Connecticut is to the east. Um like that state is so rife with corruption. Like there's an article. Why is New York, New Jersey so corrupt? That was the article in Politico uh, when this story broke. Here in Illinois, my beloved home state of Illinois, my beloved city of Chicago, there's like an endless series of politicians either going to prison or going to trial for bribery. <laughs> the New York Times is like trying to explain this. Like this is only something that happens in Egypt. This is baffling, New York Times readers. Let's just try to explain this to you. There's such a thing as corrupt officials. There's such a thing as bribery. <laughs> Thank you, New York Times, for opening my eyes to these things. Oh, my God. It just made me laugh out loud, ladies and gentlemen. A little distraction uh, from the gloom and doom, the onslaught, the murder uh, that exists all around us all the time. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on uh, my distinguished guest, Chris Scott. Welcome back, Chris Scott. It's great to be back. Yes. Uh, and uh, so uh, before I get uh, your thoughts on uh, the events of the day, particularly the speaker's race, and any thoughts you might want to have about the New York Times discovery that bribery exists in the world, 
uh, why don't you uh, reintroduce yourself uh, to our listeners? This is your second appearance on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, and the first time you had a different title. So go ahead, just update people on who you are and uh, what you do. Go. Yeah, well, I think the last time I was on, I was chief political officer for Democracy for America. Uh, there, I created all of our electoral program, oversaw our communications, organizing, and political departments. And so I think we were recapping uh, the 2022 uh, primaries. That is where you gave me uh, my infamous Ohio test, testing how much I knew about pop culture with Dave Chappelle. And I gave you some facts you didn't know uh, about Ohio and the landscape. And so since then, uh, DFA unfortunately uh, collapsed, um, which was shocking to all of us uh, on staff at the end of uh, 2022 after 18 long uh, hard fought years being a leader in the progressive movement. And so, uh, after that, I think there was a lot of just kind of reconciling and figuring out, you know, I've always had the press, uh, pleasure to work unapologetically wherever I want, but making sure that where I worked always aligned with my values and what I wanted. And so there's a little bit of a time, especially going into 2024, wanting to make sure you pick the right thing. Uh, that's next, but also recognizing where I was in my career at that point. You know, I have pretty much been at uh, executive level for the last five years. And so uh, there are also so many, uh, only so many of those opportunities. And so after uh, sitting down a lot, I had a former staffer with DFA uh, that was political director uh, when I was uh, there uh, and ran the political department for us. And so she kept pushing me. It's like, I think we should start a pack. And I'm like, uh, I'm not totally sure about it. This is a lot of work. You got to make sure you're in the right mindset and physically ready to take on everything that it takes to actually build a good pack. And so probably on the third time she asked me right after my birthday, I'll never forget. I was driving up uh, to Washington, D.C. to uh, uh, get my son uh, for the weekend. And so I call her. And I'm like, you know what? F it, let's do it. Um, and so from there, uh, APAC, Advanced Electorate PAC, uh, was kind of the idea of it was started. And so we had our official public launch on September 14th, uh, got a, a feature in Political Playbook. Uh, we've been hitting the podcast circuit. And so the thing to know about Advanced Electorate PAC, uh, it is a more progressive uh, PAC. It endorsed candidates. We created Advanced Electorate or APAC uh, to recruit, train, and elect the next generation of progressive democratic operatives uh, and uh, candidates as well. And by focusing corely uh, on statewide judicial races and state legislative uh, races, we built, feel that we can build a more inclusive democracy and transform the landscape. And so uh, the other exclusive thing, we endorse candidates from the new American majority. Um, and so that is Black, 
Latino, uh, other people of color under 41 or unmarried women. And that is our core uh, demographic as far as the background uh, for our candidates. And the biggest thing with that is those are oftentimes the candidates that get the least uh, investment uh, early on. And there's still a lot of disparity around this country, especially when we look at the uh, judicial levels. And so we've gotten a lot of questions about you know, why not just, you know, uh, the federal races? And yeah, we do federal, but everybody does federal. That's not different. I think people are finally starting to wake up and see the difference uh, of what happens when we don't invest uh, in the state legislature, how many of our rights can actually be repealed. When we don't have more uh, judges on the Court of Appeals and state Supreme Courts, you know, what rights are actually not uh, enforced and back up uh, for us. And so uh, we really believe in this work, uh, you know, beyond the whole uh, that has existed a little bit now in the progressive movement with the collapse of DFA, the Democratic Party as a whole just has not done a good job in creating a long-term plan when it comes into all those middle of the ground races or what I like to call the spine uh, of uh, the ticket, especially in federal election years without those candidates that people see on the daily that impact their daily lives. Like we're gonna continue to have the problems we have in trying to progress America where we want it to be. And so that's a little bit about where I've been. All right, very good. Advanced electorate uh, is the name of the pack. All right. Uh, listening to what you said uh, has prompted a lot of questions uh, that had nothing to do with what I told you we'd be talking about. But I did <laughs> warn you, Chris, you know how it goes when you come Except on this show. I, I actually listen to my guests and then respond to what they say. Uh <laughs> Uh, so before we get to the House Speaker race, because it is, it, it would be ironic just to go, well, let's uh, forget about the state races and talk to Congress. Let's go back to something you said. And um, uh, the significance and the importance, I am with you 100%. I think I said this the last time we were on the show. I say this pretty much every time the subject come up. Democrats fell asleep when Obama got elected. And when they woke up, oh, my God, Republicans are taking control of, I don't know, run down the states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio. Uh, throughout the country, fell asleep, fell in love with the Obamas and thought, well, that's over. We can just go vacation. Uh, and boy, was that a wake up call. And here we are 13 years later and still trying to figure out uh, how to made some progress, but not a lot. And that's because they took their eye off those state races, which are so important when it gets uh, to the matter of controlling a state house and redistricting, drawing the boundaries on maps. Mm -hmm. uh, gerrymandering has crippled the Democratic Party. Um, so that leads me to this. The Washington Post had an article about a week or so ago. I haven't talked about it in the show yet. I, I personally uh, thought it was one of the most misguided articles I've seen coming out of the Washington Post in years. I'll get your thoughts on this. I know it, it essentially uh, took a look at the Illinois gerrymandering uh, in the state of Illinois with congressional. We're talking about congressional now. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and they were saying that uh, the uh, Democrats in Illinois, led by Chris Welch, House Speaker Chris Welch, so successfully, quote unquote, gerrymandered uh, the congressional districts that they undercut the moderates uh, in the Republican Party and as a result have emboldened uh, the wackiest of wacko magas. 
Uh, and uh, so in a sense, they were blaming the Democrats for the wackos in Congress, which, man, only a liberal newspaper would do that. But anyway, uh, so what is your position? Your, I, I have very strong feelings about the thesis they raise and how uh, off the wall it is. But I just look at your thoughts on the concept of gerrymandering. Uh, do you think it's a bad thing or an unhealthy thing and that it leads to um, this polarization uh, in America, or do you think it's a necessary thing? Go. I think overall, it's definitely one of those things that I don't think is helpful and conducive long term for us. I think when we look at why people are so distrusting of the political process, I think gerrymandering is one of those things at the very top, because when you're talking about uh, not actually having representation that's reflective of the communities and our uh, populations. That's a real thing because uh, we've seen what happens when you only have one or two voices to actually uh, speak out. And that's not even just talking about on the skin uh, color of ethnicity uh, with things. That's also having a different background and lived experiences when you put different zip codes and area codes uh, together sometimes as well. And so uh, it's something that right now, I think we are still trying to navigate to a space where we get more independent redistricting uh, commissions and we get away from more of politicians actually drawing the maps because how do you not expect, especially with uh, the GOP now, not to run rampant uh, if they get the opportunity to draw the map themselves? I mean, look at what just happened in Ohio. Uh, in 2018, when I was still executive director for the Black Caucus there, uh, we got a bipartisan resolution passed that said, you're going to have to draw fair maps in 2020. What do Republicans do? Well, let's just keep kicking down the can down the road until uh, the courts make us draw the maps. And when the courts say, hey, these maps are illegal, well, if we can avoid it a few more years, two or more of those court seats are up, we can control the full court and we never have to do deal with this uh, again. And so effectively, they got to a point where I think eventually they just wore down Democrats. Uh, Democrats lost more seats in the House uh, 2020 and I think 2022 and uh, got back in the super minority again. And so you have a map that I think, you know, best case scenario uh, for Democrats, like maybe they have 41 seats and that's if you ran every single race uh, perfect, it's like 41 or 44 seats. But, you know, that's what you're dealing with in places uh, like Ohio and what they want to do in Virginia and what we've seen them do in North Carolina. Um, vice versa, when you get a Michigan and you see what happens when you actually have to run on fair maps, Democrats usually win uh, when you give us an actual fair shot. Yeah, and when you were talking about in Ohio, you're talking about uh, fair maps in terms of the state legislature, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, I just want to make sure everybody understands that. Yeah, that's 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 number one problem uh, with in, in uh, Democrats voluntarily giving up gerrymandering is that Republicans don't play by those rules; they play by a different set of rules. So. <laughs> Democrat, you know, good government Democrats, like, yeah, we'll give up our power here in Illinois. And meanwhile, Republicans are like just dividing up Ohio, Wisconsin, and Michigan the best way they can. Exactly. Uh, to put out Democrats in one district or what they're doing in Alabama, uh, in uh, South Carolina. 
uh, is frightening as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's an issue of like unilateral uh, gerrymandering. It uh, doesn't really work. I, I'm going to address the, the core uh, point that the Washington Post made and get your response to it. So their argument is that by uh, putting Republicans into uh, and compacting them into one giant uh, congressional, uh, several, uh, I think it's three uh, heavily uh, Republican districts, just without spreading them around uh, to dilute their vote statewide, you've, you've given the Republican Party, uh, you've given MAGA complete control over those districts. And so they will never elect um, a moderate uh, who would do something like, I don't know, uh, make a compromise with Akeem Jeffries uh, in the House. Okay, that's their argument. This is the well, the best minds in the Washington Post came up with this argument. And I'm like, I'm like, where in the country, Washington Post? Show me a district where Republicans are voluntarily electing moderates in this day and age. I mean, here in the state of Illinois, <laughs> it's like MAGA controls the Republican primary to get to the general election where supposedly a moderate would have an advantage uh, in a general election where independents and Democrats are also voting, uh, requires winning a primary. Mm -hmm. the, the Republican Party is so controlled by MAGA that the old map that the Washington Post was lamenting that produced Adam Kinzinger, the congressman from Illinois who voted to impeach uh, Trump, that old map, Mm -hmm. Under that old map, the Republicans drove Kiss Kinzinger out of their party. They punished him for what? Daring to vote against their their emperor mm -hmm. in Wyoming. They punished Liz Cheney for what? Daring to vote against their emperor. I don't know what. I don't know what like fantasy world the Washington Post is living in, where they see a Republican. Republican primary voters rewarding moderates. Help me with this one, Chris. I mean, isn't that the whole argument we're literally having to deal with now not having a Speaker of the House is because one set of the party that has been more emboldened and that you're seeing be more successful on the state uh, lines uh, want a certain type of way. And so really, I think the I mean, we talk about moderates. I mean, you think about what, uh, how they ousted uh, Eric Cantor when the Tea Party was there, and then now you got MAGA Trump. And so this has been going on for a trend for a while now. No moderate Republican is just having a cakewalk uh, in primaries anymore. We're seeing a lot more districts where uh, it, even if you call yourself, quote unquote, a moderate Republican, you have to take at least one extreme uh, take to survive, I think, in this political uh, climate right now. Um, and so yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that continues to play out, because I think particularly in the Midwest, I think that's where you're seeing those old kind of Reagan policy idea, Reagan type uh, Republicans really start to make more of a stand of like, actually, no, y'all are going to be the destruction of our party. We need to come more back uh, towards the middle. Uh, and yes, sometimes, you know, compromise is good. But and at the end of the day, let's talk about it. 
who gets hurt uh, the most uh, if the Republican Party uh, can't have any type of decorum, it's still the American people, because that means if you have a Republican Party that never wants to compromise with Democrats, uh, unless you are willing to give Democrats a super majority in Congress in a lot of these states, you're not going, we're going to keep having government shutdowns and stuff like that, because you see what happens when you even have a small percentage of those MAGA Republicans uh, get a hold of a mic and a platform within that party. And to your point, I want to give a shout out to listener Frank. I've been meaning to do this for a while. Uh, a devoted listener to this show, political junkie extraordinaire. Uh, he sent me a text uh, about a week or so ago, uh, Chris, or I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and had, right at the time, around the time that Kevin McCarthy was ousted. Uh, and it was a picture of a book that came out in about 2012 called Young Guns, Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, and Kevin McCarthy. And this was a book heralding the arrival of new voices in the Republican Party, new voices that could reach over and pick up independence and uh, with, with like a... <laughs> Like a, a, a smart, <laughs> I just, I'm laughing. It's so bizarre to think about it. Uh, and all three of these uh, politicians are effectively kicked out one way or another of the Republican Party. Uh, Kevin McCarthy was ousted as uh, speaker. Eric mm. Cantor lost uh, to the Tea Party candidate. Paul Ryan stepped down, uh, but now he's largely, widely reviled by uh, MAGA because they think he's too conciliatory. So, I, I just don't see, I don't see it. The I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting. I mean, what I worry about, uh, especially as a Democratic uh, strategist, and I think, you know, to the degree progressives uh, talk a lot more about this than even moderate uh, Democrats, but it's like, how many people, independent, moderate Democrats uh, and Republicans give to something like the Lincoln Project? And so what I always think about is still Republicans on both wings. I think the extreme side, the MAGA side, they're a lot more short term with their thinking and don't think the long term play. But you still have a lot of moderate Republicans that have those little side projects that are slowly rebuilding the narrative of what it means to be a Republican and conservative. And, you know, going back in to a degree, I think, adopting some of the Democratic messaging that has worked, but seizing the opportunity that people are scared in the direction that that party is going. And so that is something I think you can never underestimate because, uh, and I think for Democrats, let Republicans fight it out and see who emerges because what is the worry is Democrats aiding moderate Republicans and then moderate Republicans in 2028 taking everything from the Democrats after you've practically partially gotten funded by the ideologies, uh, you know, our media letting more of them on MSNBC and they'll just take the platform that you're going to give them and still steal it all away from us uh, right under our nose. Right. Uh, all right. Well, let's get to uh, the, the speaker situation uh, in Washington. That's sort of been the big news out of Washington uh, this week. Uh, the inability of the Republicans to uh, govern. Uh, there are those who argue that the Republican Party as it exists right now, which is controlled by MAGA, doesn't want to govern. They just want to destroy government. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's I think there's a, a lot of evidence that uh, points to that. Um, 
but uh, at the very least, they um, uh, they're the party uh, majority party in the House. Heck of a job, New York Democrats uh, uh, and California Democrats uh, and Ohio Democrats uh, for that. Sorry, uh, Chris, uh, for that situation. Apparently, all of you can learn a lesson, a uh, thing or two from Chris Welch here in Illinois. You should come to Illinois and take a tutorial from Chris Welch on how to how to uh, draw a map uh, and have party loyalty and allegiances. Um, but uh, so they can't settle on a speaker to replace Kevin McCarthy, who they ousted uh, about whatever it was two weeks ago. Um, things could change. By the time this show airs, and so a week, a week from now, it could be out there. Excuse me. Hold on. Something swallowed there. But give us the latest. What's going on right now? Well, I think the latest is more chaos. So now we're nine days. I think without a speaker, something like that, um, I believe Scalise isn't even running it anymore, which he goes from being what was thought possibly as the front runner to Oh, I'm not doing that. And anytime somebody just suddenly drops out, I assume, um, especially a Republican, that there's something that they don't want getting out there either. And so they're okay with still keeping the leadership role. And then uh, you have this new rep, I think, out of Georgia. Uh, his last name is Scott. No relation to me at all. Um, but um you know, even his own folks in Georgia don't like him. And so what we really have is Jim Jordan, which is extremely scary to see somebody like that in the speaker role, uh, just looking at his track record, just along of what he's done in Congress. We know he's been one of the leaders when it came uh, comes to impeachment inquiries against uh uh, Biden, uh, he has regularly uh, been a supporter of Donald Trump, uh, uh, talking about he's been an election conspiracy uh, person. Like he is the, you know, face of, I think, what you see as a skilled MAGA uh, Republican in that he's always been, I think, extreme going back to his history uh, in Ohio, I think when you were looking at Steve Scalise and um, uh, Jim Jordan, like, you know, um, if I may cuss a little bit, uh, it's the difference between shit and more shit at, at the end of the day in that uh, Ohio Republicans are extremely skilled, but can be, you know, this is one of the uh, states that really transform uh, Donald Trump into being as strong as he is. Uh, and then you got a place like Louisiana, where we know Republicans are always skilled in Southern Republicans in places like Louisiana and Texas and Florida are just a completely different breed to deal with of their anti everything and they're used to always having it their way uh, as well. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's scary to see somebody like Jim Jordan potentially in that seat, but at the same time, I think Democrats have to be prepared uh, on the campaign trail to wage war of what you know you would see under a speakership of Jim Jordan. Obviously, you know you're not going to be getting cooperation, but use that to your advantage. The fact that you know they're not going to want to cooperate with you, uh, because at the same time, Jim Jordan is going to use that as a platform to launch every single uh, volley at Democrats uh, and tear uh, us down going into the 2024 cycle if he gets that speakership.
Absolutely. And then the scary thought, the scary thought is his second in line. Uh, if God forbid something happens to the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, yeah. And, and uh, we could do a whole uh, uh, show on Jim Jordan uh, and his career. Uh, he, um, he started, he was a wrestling coach at Ohio state university. Uh, and um, there was a uh, sex abuse scandal where a, a doctor at Ohio state uh, was um, molesting, assaulting uh, some of the wrestlers uh, and uh, Jim Jordan had an interesting, very, very, very interesting case of can't hear. I call him like this is a this is an old baby boomer reference. He was like Sergeant Schultz and Hogan's Heroes, which is a reference that only my boomer listeners will understand. But there was a TV show where the, the, the character Sergeant Schultz was all this horrific things were going around him. And he goes, I see nothing. I hear nothing. Uh, and that was uh, Jim Jordan's response to uh, the abuse uh, that was happening right there. Uh, in front for everyone to see he couldn't see and now suddenly okay now he's a big watchdog you know he's uh colombo here gonna go investigate biden but he when he when he had this abuse case right in front of his eyes he suddenly mm-hmm. couldn't see uh so that's your guy republicans okay that's your guy um the, the thought of jim jordan as speaker uh makes in my mind kevin mccarthy not so bad go back if you will and give your thoughts on the strategy of the democrats uh, to vote against McCarthy and thus guarantee uh, joining eight Republicans. We talked about this at length about a couple of weeks ago, but just pe- in case people uh, forgot, there were eight Republicans who voted against McCarthy and uh, following the leadership of, of uh, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrats voted as a block against McCarthy, thus guaranteeing that he would no longer be speaker. Your thoughts now when you think about the possibility of Jordan as uh, Speaker of the House, do you think that was a good idea? Uh, well, I, think, for I think it's still being calculated, and I like it. Uh, I think it's a little bit different style uh, from Democrats and always wanting to trudge the bipartisan role. But look, uh, Kevin McCarthy dug his own grave. Uh, at the end of the day, when he completely botched, uh, you know, protecting against a government shutdown and how he just handled that whole situation. And so, uh, no, like, uh, I don't even feel sorry for him. Um, and I think sometimes it's, a, you know, uh, he is still a warrantable uh, adversary uh, that you still have to be careful. And so if you do help him survive with his competency, how does he screw you later on if you bail him out? Uh, whereas I think uh, there is advantage in letting uh, Republicans eat their own and figure this out. You created the mess and we know uh, you don't have your party fully under uh, control. I think the interesting thing in I think you're seeing more of a dynamic now of both progressive and moderate Democrats being able to unify on certain stuff. And you would expect that re- from Republicans. You don't have any of that uh, at all any, uh, in there. And so chaos to a degree politically uh, advantage uh, to Democrats because we don't create the party or uh, we didn't create the problem. Uh, we're still in the minority uh, because we lost the election. And I think, uh, hey, Americans, if you want one more case study of why they don't need to be in control, look at this right now and how much stuff uh, we can't fund 
because they can't play nice with each other. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I could see your point, uh, large term. Uh, now we'll go back to the Washington Post article about uh, the Washington Post belief, whoever wrote the article, I can't remember, put that out of my mind, uh, that there is there are moderates in the Republican Party who have been cut off at the knees by those evil uh, Illinois gerrymandering Democrats. Um, so what are the chances in your mind? As a, you've, got, you've, been, you've watched politics a long time. What are the chances that it goes reverse, uh, that 18 moderates in the Republican caucus who represent districts uh, that went for Biden, call up Akeem Jeffries and go, all right, let's cut a deal. This is insane. We need a speaker. Um, you know, we'll support you to be speaker or you'll support one of us to be speaker if we guarantee this, that, and the other thing. In other words, a compromise that the seems to love. Go ahead. I don't know. I think that is something certainly I've seen that happen at the state level. I just think where Congress is right now, I just don't see that happening. Uh, I definitely don't see Republicans, moderates getting behind the Hakeem Jeffries, because why give the American people a preview of what uh, Speaker Jeffries could look like? That's an advantage to Democrats if you back him. Uh, and again, I think they know Democrats are more unified right now in that we're not going to help you win your fight. You got to figure this out yourself. Uh, and if you can't, we're still going to pick up the scraps uh, later. But you made your bet. Now lying. And I think it has to be uh, that way. And again, I don't think that is a bad thing coming from Democrats. I think, again, it's the thing that a lot of people, I think, it, not even as a strategist, just as a voter, I want to see that uh, more out of my own party and showing that fight and that tenacity a lot more uh, that, you know, sometimes we get bullied about not fully being ready uh, to get our hands a little bit dirty and have a slugfest, uh, you know, for the soul of this nation. How does Akeem Jeffries keep that caucus together? I, I, I'm... Uh, I... You know, I'm watching from the outside. Uh, it invokes uh, what what I always mention on the mic here on my show. Uh, there was a House Speaker in Illinois that everybody wants to try to pretend doesn't exist. His name is Michael Joseph Madigan, and he's now up on an indictment charge. <laughs> Breaking news: New York Times. Uh oh, another another corruption case in the United States. New York Times. Uh, I thought it only happened in Egypt. Um, but uh, anyway, but say what you will about Michael Joseph Madigan. He, he was a brilliant tactician when it came to keeping his caucus together. He knew how to do it, and he did it, I mean, for years. So w what's your sense of how Akeem Jeffries is operating as uh, the Senate leader uh, in Congress? I'm just going to be the Democratic leader in Congress, Go. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about somebody like Hakeem Jeffries is, yes, he's a moderate, but he still has other intersections that allows him to kind of come from a different background of experience. You still uh, think about the historicness of him being the leader of the Democratic Party in Congress and what it means to have somebody from the Congressional Black Caucus and how uh, I got to see firsthand of you know, when you come from a caucus uh, like that within the Democratic caucus, uh, you learn of 
uh, yes, we have to do things together, but at the same time, there's parts where you can be accountability. Uh, and I think that allows you to open up a different pathways. Now, look, I'm not, uh, you know, I think still, uh, I would like to see more progressives in leadership as we're continuing to really say we're building a more inclusive party uh, from that. But I think there are conversations that he's willing to also uh, have, not saying Pelosi was never willing to do it, but it's the right time. He's a little bit younger. Uh, again, he's Black, which we haven't had uh, before. And I, again, I think Democrats right now get we got to get back control. We cannot take this for granted. We cannot play. Uh, and I think that's also the beauty of uh, when you look at uh, who's in Democratic leadership now and even the wave of progressive uh, candidates that's been elected. You're talking about folks like Jasmine Crockett, Delia, uh, Congresswoman Delia Ramirez, uh, uh, Congressman uh, Kassar, uh, that are former legislatures, uh, uh, legislators too, or council people. And so they have a little bit of skill too. I don't think we've had this much talent uh, in Congress at uh, least in a long time, but also the diversity of that talent, uh, both from experience, but also uh, ethnic uh, background, I think that's why we're not fighting that as much. Whereas for them, they when they created Trump, they allowed a split of, I think Republicans have always wanted good old day politics, but they went about working uh, to a certain way, and there was still certain extremes that you just didn't cross. Now, we know they were always eventually looking for a time where they could go after Dobbs again, but I think they have seen we don't have this thing on leash anymore. We embolden too many people, uh, and now we have to deal with the reality of you had a lot of underlying issues within the Republican Party about um, who was actually your base there that probably wasn't even voting because you weren't speaking to them and they did not want to work that much. And now you just let them wake up. Um, the co-worker uh, in West Virginia, that was a big Trumper because they felt like nobody talked to them at all. And, but also they're a little bit uh, more willing to accept the lie because they do want to see life in a certain light right now. Uh, and uh, so you mentioned Trump. Let's do a little handicapping. Uh, as a Democrat uh, on the outside, looking in at the Republican presidential primary, uh, do you? I'm just laughing because it just flashed in my mind the last debate. Did you watch the debate? I actually watched the Republican debates. I have to. They're like homework for me because I know I'm always. If I'm on a segment the next week, what's the first topic of conversation? Plus, you got to know your enemy. <laughs> I, you know what? I tell that to so many Democratic lefties <laughs> who don't, you know, they, they live in their bubble. So they don't even, they don't read MAGA, uh, MAGA thinkers. It's a, I don't know, maybe a contradiction, but uh, uh, MAGA writers, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they don't. Uh, I'm not saying you have to watch uh, Fox because that's like that's a yeah. different kind of punishment. But they, they so they won't watch the debates. They won't, uh, you know, they just kind of like pretend like it doesn't exist. But uh, 
So what's your what's your thoughts about where they stand? Is there a chance, in your humble opinion, uh, that any of these candidates who are on stage, what was it, Wisconsin? Oh, I forgot what well, it I was. Think, uh, uh, can they beat Trump? I think right now it, it's still the junior varsity show. Uh, it's Trump and everybody else. I think mm-hmm. right now it's more of an argument of who might be the premier ideal person to be the VP for Donald Trump, but also uh, as Trump's legal problems get greater and greater, who wants to attach themselves knowing he demands absolute loyalty and you're possibly compromising yourself for your own federal investigation if you run on a ticket with them. And so, but I do think, you know, there is something to say, even if this is more uh, JV, of if something the levies were to break, then one of these people are going to be the presumptive nominee. And so uh, I've, I've said from the very get-go, uh, one of the people that always worried me was uh, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Um, and also a Chris Christie, if he could ever fully get his act together. Uh, but you look at somebody like Nikki Haley, and yeah, she has a lot of appeals. She's from uh, South Carolina. South Carolina is known to put, you know, a lot of Republican leaders to a degree out there, or at least uh, speaking voices uh, out there. She's somebody that's been a governor before. Um, and what always scares me is a Republican that can be tactically extreme at times that knows a little bit about governance. Um, that's always a worry that you have to worry about. And because, uh, I mean, you look at uh, Bush. Bush was terrible because Bush was pretty much had all the worst possible advisors that could really control things because he was impressionable uh, a lot more than what his father was. And so, uh, but then if you get somebody that has charisma like Reagan and something like that, that can systematically do those working or even uh, like Daddy Bush, that is terrifying. And I think if you Republicans were to find that, especially from a younger candidate, and reform some of those messaging before Democrats put a full lock on what doesn't happen under Republicans, you're going to see that pendulum swing very quickly back. I um, at, the, at this moment, I cannot imagine uh, Nikki Haley uh, or Tim Scott being uh, the Republican nominee. I just there's not a world in which I see that happening. And I read a column that was George Will are urging Tim Scott to drop out of the race. George Will, a conservative columnist um, who uh, d- is uh, despises Trump, uh, and uh, urging uh, Tim Scott to get out of the race and endorse Nikki Haley. So, from sort of that old th- that old line Republican Party of the Reagan years or Daddy Bush years, uh, not Baby Bush, but Daddy Bush uh, years, like Nikki Haley is, is sort of like they see her as mm-hmm. the next wave, if you will, you know, carrying uh, that torch and. I just, I mean, that party is so gone from the MAGA people that run it now. I, I don't well, know. I, 
another person I think people have to watch out for that's dangerous, and I don't think he'll be running this cycle, but I think of him for the next, uh, somebody like a Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, and you watch how he run that race. Uh, depending on what happens in Virginia this year, if he gets control of the legislature like he wants, that's another automatic national stage Republican that I think unfortunately does a very good job of leading that kind of anti-woke movement, CRT, all of that, and can speak to MAGA values, but in a tone that doesn't make those supporters realize that they're actually still being moderate that can get a hold of the Republican Party. Somebody like that absolutely terrifies me uh, to see come into power. By the way, I I will re- respond to that one briefly. Uh, so many people tell me, uh, you watch Ben Glenn Young and Glenn Young and Republican governor of Virginia. I'm like, that man is hiding under a table right now. He's so afraid of upsetting Donald Trump. I do not believe what Donald Trump uh, is officially running. You will ever see uh, Youngkin running for office. I will say this about the, the what is it, eight of them that were on stage, maybe it was seven. I apologize, people. I've lost track. Um, say what you will about every single one of them, uh, and I cannot see them voting for any of them <laughs> ever for anything. Uh, it's me personally. At least they're running against Trump. Mm-hmm. At least they're doing that. You know, I mean, I know the bar is low, Chris, but at least they got the guts to to run against Trump, even if they while they're doing it, they're deferring to him, praising him, chastising the government for prosecuting him when he clearly there's clear evidence to put it mildly of him breaking the law. At least they're doing that as opposed to Youngkin, who is hiding under some desk. uh, What's the state capital in Virginia? I just blanked on it. What? uh, I think Richmond. Yeah. Oh, yeah. North of Richmond. Richmond, north of Richmond. Yeah. At least he, <laughs> they're not hiding under it. Uh, but I mean, if you look at somebody like Youngkin, why even insert yourself in this fight? Uh, again, you got a chance. We don't know what's going to happen in Virginia this year. Uh, and you stay out of it regardless. Uh, I think the hopes is let Trump still eat himself alive. And I'm one of the most talked about Republicans now. Uh, that standing post-Trump, and I have a lock on both bases, our, the moderate base and the MAGA crowd, uh, too. I go to the front of the line when it comes to 2028. And so, uh, you know, uh, it's one tactic about it. But again, why take your chance? I think he could have done it, but also why take the chance if you don't have to? All right, fair enough. That's his strategy. He's sticking to it. Uh, let's close uh, with a like a bit of a different uh, topic, and uh, I will reserve the right to bring you back to take a deeper dive into Ohio politics at another time. The Senate race they have coming up, the the referendum they have coming up uh, on abortion rights, etc. So Ohio is a pivotal uh, state, uh, and uh, Chris does know Ohio very well. Uh, believe it or not, for a guy who knows Ohio very well, he's also uh, a, a diehard Detroit Lions football fan. Uh, and this is his moment. Uh, I know a lot of political junkies out there don't follow football as closely as I do. But the Detroit Lions, who are usually the doormat in football, have been one of the worst teams in this century uh, in football. 
this year have a really good team. I believe at the moment they're four and one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they smashed whoever they played last. Was it Denver? I can't I think remember. It was, we played Carolina last. Carolina, right. I'm just, <laughs> uh, and so uh, I think before we went on there, Chris doing a little trash talking about how much better the Lions are than my beloved Bears. Um, so this is your moment to shine. Uh, but you said something interesting, that there are some parallels. And you're a sports junkie, as am mm-hmm. I. You said there were some parallels between building a successful sports franchise that's successful both drawing fans in and uh, winning games mm-hmm. uh, and building a successful political party mm-hmm. uh, that enables it, that elects people to office. Mm-hmm. So explain what you mean by that. Yeah. And so uh, I like to be able to connect sports with politics when I get a chance. I don't, you don't have a lot of people that do that. I am an avid. Being from Detroit, it's one of those great sports cities. I know you get it uh, being in Chicago of just what it does to you. But when you talk about building, what's the DNA of like a winning franchise in like a NBA, in the NFL, uh, even in college football? How do you establish that winning culture and uh, identity. I think there's a lot of parallels to how you built something like that in the political space. I think uh, when you think about uh, the Emily's List, the Planned Parenthood, uh, they are seen as titans now uh, of political organizations, but also how they uh, carved out their own niche. It's like seeing like you know, the air raid offense and seeing uh, the testament of how that does against like, you know, uh, old school uh, Ravens defense or Chicago def- uh, defense or even the silver bullets for uh, uh, the Lions. Um, and so uh, I, I thought about that a lot. And I talked about that on a podcast of, you know, in building this political action committee uh, that I've co-founded what are the principles that will establish a winning culture from day one? Uh, Again, having something that looks different than everybody else that uh, takes on its own hard-nosed identity. I think the interesting point is uh, you have me from Detroit and my co-founders from Chicago. And so we're also big sports fans and we always have like the fun analogies between each other but just what it takes to build that winning franchise and so uh, i think you look at getting that franchise player that's no different than finding those first few candidates that really take off for you uh in the first place building a great uh front office that isn't always the most experienced uh but they're willing to hustle and they have the right connections in different places it's no different than the first set of directors and junior staff that you uh hire uh as well and then uh when you talk about donors given to an organization well how do you build the most attractive product uh how do you put on a spectacle it's the difference of uh, seeing the Showtime Lakers build uh, Los Angeles into a thriving, you know, uh, basketball town uh, again. But it's also the invention of the bad boys and what that did marketing wise and how almost 
every single team in Detroit has kind of that hard-nosed grit, whether or not it's the bad boys and the Pistons, you're looking at the Detroit Red Wings. When we win, it's that old school, we'll hit you in the mouth, we can have flash, we can score, but we just grind and pick up the lunch bell and go to work every day. And so you have that same mentality, again, with a, a political action committee of, hey, we're not going to be reactive uh, and let Republicans dictate the programming, dictate where they do things in the state. We're going to uh, be aggressive. We're going to be proactive in our communication, and we're going to beat you at your own game better than you can do it because we've studied your playbook. Plus, we still have our own playbook. Uh, and I would say the last thing for me and my co-founder, we're both uh, people that came from the Obama campaign. And so uh, coming from organizing background and the communication background allows us to approach this in a whole different way than a lot of our predecessors have. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I would say Obama campaign, uh, the 2008 Obama campaign, I know that's the one I'm thinking of right now is the model of what you just uh, explained. And follow me on this. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. Uh, but it, first of all, any candidate, they had perhaps the most gifted politician of my lifetime. I I would, I, I used to think it was Billy C, Billy Clinton, but that man, I don't he, <laughs> I don't even want to talk about Bill Clinton right now. Everybody who listens to my podcast knows how, Disappointed is not even the word that accurately describes my feelings about him. But he is a gifted politician. That I mean, a, a very gifted politician. That's it. I think Obama is more gifted uh, than Clinton, if such a thing is possible. So to your point, you have to have like a great. You have to pick your great candidate. You know who's got. Then you have to have a ground game. Mm -hmm. And Obama's man, their, their ground game in Iowa, which people forget about, it won them the caucus in two thousand. Uh, in eight early 2008, but the ground game was set all 2007, door to door, knock, 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 uh, bring in your neighbor, sign your neighbor up. Those, those parades, that, I remember being at a 4th of July parade in 2007, Obama had like 4th of Ju July of 2007, Chris, this election, the primary, uh, excuse me, the caucus was not until January. They, mm -hmm. they, they had their people out in that parade. Yep. So preparation and field work, uh, and then um, just having the skill be quick on your feet at all times uh, during the campaign. Uh, so, yeah, uh, where they, of course, let's just remind everybody one more time, utterly failed, is that once they got power, they forgot what got them in power. They dropped the ball. And at, if you're going to give them credit for electing Obama in 2008, fine, fair enough, great strategy. My, you gotta give them the responsibility for what went down in 2010, which was that Tea Party revolt that transformed the House, transformed state houses throughout the country. So you gotta look at both of those things. You follow what I'm saying, Chris? Like, what went wrong in 2010 that we can learn from? That's that's how I view it. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think it's the thing of Democrats have never done a extremely great job of investing in midterms the way that Republicans uh, invest in the midterms. And part of that is just keeping the year round organizing uh, model uh, in place. And I think where politics are uh, right now, but you know, if we're still staying on the sports thing, that's as much as, you know, evaluating 
uh, in the offseason, you know, figuring out the right draft uh, prospects uh, beforehand and also studying what's going to be out there in free agency. The midterms is where the president uh, gets to solidify uh, support uh, within Congress and control whether or not he's going to have a Senate or a House to be able to work with. And we've seen what happens generally when one party controls, they just get to push their agenda as much as they're willing to push their agenda. Uh, but the same thing at the state level, again, understanding the states have consequences. And if you don't invest in the states, then Republicans are able to do what they did in 2012, not just take back Congress, but in winning at the state level, uh, understanding we are about to redraw every map and make sure y'all can't mm -hmm. win for at least another decade. And you got to see that part uh, in between because that's the difference of whether or not you're a perennial good franchise uh, and your party is winning uh, or or you're able to bring uh, build a dynasty uh, politically for what uh, you're able to actually get uh, accomplished from year to year to year. All right, uh, we'll close with this question. No ducking, no dodging. I don't want to see any dancing on this question. Uh, okay. You're speaking to a largely Chicago audience, uh, and uh, and you say you're a sports fan uh, and you're a diehard Detroit Lions fan. So the Chicago Bears, uh, have you seen enough in Justin Fields to give you confidence that he is the quarterback of the future, or should the Bears tank to get the number one draft pick and take Caleb Williams? Go. Look, I see the attractiveness of getting uh, Caleb Williams. It's funny because I had this debate with a lot of my friends uh, over the weekend. I think you can build a franchise around Justin Fields. I think what you do if you're the Chicago Bears, uh, you possibly trade one of those picks away, get some more draft uh, captain capital uh but you go draft marvin harrison so now he has dj moore marvin harrison cole commit that is something that scares me which is why i'm glad the lions is investing in defense right now because yeah you can have an offense but you got to be able to slow somebody down and i think fields can get it done i don't think he has been he hasn't been surrounded around uh, the talent. Uh, I'm, he's not a Michael Vick, but he has those intangibles that somebody like Michael Vick have. And I think of the Michael Vick when he was with the Eagles and had he had an Andy Reid his whole career, how we would be talking about Michael Vick. Uh, so much differently had he been able to develop that passing. And I think Chicago, y'all can do that if y'all have uh, faith versus just starting fresh with a Caleb Williams, build up the assets because, look, I will say Detroit, uh, I love Dan Campbell. I love Brad Holmes. I like how they're building and developing uh, and building a culture. And so I don't think Detroit's going anywhere. And I don't think we can expect Green Bay to still be down for too long before they eventually figure that out because Green Bay always just has that allure and eventually gets it together regardless. So I think y'all stick with them. And I think uh, we could be having a conversation in like three years about the NFC uh, um, division, the North being the strongest out there uh, of all the divisions. Uh, okay, so uh, first of all, I appreciate you not ducking and dodging and giving a straight answer. Uh, and I'll close with my response, which is, number one, you're welcome for David Montgomery. Okay. 
Uh, I didn't know he was that good. (laughs) Apparently the Bears didn't either, uh, which is why they gave him up. Uh, Good job, Bears. Uh, And uh, I will say this. As a Chicago Bear fan, I'm wondering, should I be taking the advice of a diehard Detroit Lions fan? Maybe he's giving me bad advice to follow in the hopes that I follow it. And the whole thing falls apart. It's like some kind of spy thing where you misinformation. Uh, Chris Scott's blast talking to you as always. Uh, thank you very much for coming on my show. I appreciate it. All right. Always a pleasure. Look forward to being back in the future. All right. When we come back, we'll take the deep dive on Ohio. Chris Scott is our man in Ohio, even if he doesn't literally live there right now. He knows everything about Ohio. And he proved that the last time he was in the show when he passed my Ohio trivia question. I'm like, God damn, this man knows a lot about Ohio. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Chris. And then there's another Chris I want to thank, producer Chris. He does an outstanding job uh, on the Ben Jarowski show. And I think Chris Scott will agree with me when I say, hey, Chris, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can always catch up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and a whole lot more, all at chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram, at Benny J Show, and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. <laughs>